0: Transform your creative potential today. Head over to unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys. Use the number four, K-E-Y-S. That's unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys and download your free copy.
1: The essence here that once you have something that you can measure your performance against, then it becomes clear that if you want to change your performance, something has to happen. And I think that's where purposeful practice, or if you actually are in a domain here where we would argue that there is a teacher who actually has validated techniques for helping you bridge that gap or bridge part of the gap uh, with basically known training methods. But it is sort of, I think, you know, the really magic here of learning, you know, how you try to do your best, and then basically how do you actually get further than your very best? And I think that's where you need to basically have that background in terms of teachers, because if you're already doing what you think is the best, how would you basically then figure out how to improve that further? And I think that's where a teacher would be able to see and compare you against other individuals and now see what is it that you need to be changing in order to actually increase your accuracy or the speed or power or the quality of the ideas that you're generating. And I think that's really the heart of deliberate practice, where you, you're you not really just trying to do exactly the same thing. You're actually trying to do it slightly differently in a way that would allow you you know, to basically uh, be on the path here of reaching a higher level of performance.
0: I'm Srini Rao, and this is the Unmistakable Creative Podcast, where you get a window into the stories and insights of the most innovative and creative minds who've started movements, built thriving businesses, written best-selling books, and created insanely interesting art. For more, check out our 500-episode archive at UnmistakableCreative.com.
2: Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices
1: My pleasure. I'm really looking forward to talking to
0: you again. Yeah, likewise. So, uh, we are bringing you back for a second time because I have a new book out called An Audience of One Reclaiming Creativity for Its Own Sake, in which I dedicated an entire section of it to deliberate practice because I thought the ideas were so important. And I thought, who better to talk to about this than you, given that you literally wrote the book on the subject? But before we get into all of that, I want to ask where did you grow up and what impacted where you grew up? end up having on the direction that you've gone with your life and your career?
1: Well, you know, I, I guess you don't really have an experimental control. Uh, I grew up in Sweden, uh, in Stockholm, uh, which is the capital of Sweden. And uh, pretty much spent my adult sort of life until I got my PhD in Sweden. Uh, I was a foreign exchange student in the United States, which I think, you know, allowed me to kind of get to a point where I really felt you know, comfortable with English and the American culture. So after I graduated, I got an opportunity to do a postdoc in the United States. So I moved there with my family and then basically I ended up staying. Uh, uh, you know, I got a job uh, and, and I've had a couple of jobs. One uh, as an assistant professor all the way to full professor at University of Colorado in Boulder. And uh, most recently I've been, a professor here at Florida State University. Mm. What,
0: uh, what is the education like in, in Sweden and, and what impact uh, did the culture itself uh, have on your life and kind of the, the path that you've chosen, do you think?
1: Well, you know, uh, I guess uh, it's uh, unfortunately a relatively long time ago. Uh, so in Sweden at that time, you know, they had much more kind of early uh, branching off. So, so I guess in fifth grade, I got onto a track that was sort of leading me to, uh, you know, academic, uh, types of, of opportunities. And, uh, and I don't know, I, I think, you know, when I grew up, it was interesting for me, the contrast when I went to the States for that one year where I engaged in sports and all sorts of activities in Sweden uh, at that time, you know, it was fairly uh a, a, a strict emphasis on the sort of the the intellectual and 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 i guess one of the things i loved to do was to watch films and and, and i guess i had a group of friends and we tried to sort of catch all the highly rated films um, but i think you know more generally i think i was always interested in, in my own thinking and and how i could improve it and. Um, And I think, you know, my dissertation was really focused in on trying to get information about what people are thinking about when they're confronting problems. And so that was kind of like the starting point for uh, my career when I actually studied now, what are the consequences if you really engage with the right kind of training? You know, what are the changes that you can really accomplish?
0: Mm. You know, I remember something that really struck me from our last conversation uh, when I went back and, and listened to it. And you told me this story uh, about uh, when you wanted to learn history, you actually chose rather than memorizing to go and read history books. And as a result, you're able to answer questions on tests without necessarily memorizing or doing you know the work that was assigned. Why does that happen? Like what occurs in the brain that allows that to happen? And why do you think that this is not the way that we are taught right now?
1: Well, I personally found it kind of repulsive to memorize because it just didn't seem to me that it actually allowed me to develop in an important or in some kind of perceivable way. Uh, so, kind of that idea here of actually trying to understand the meaning. And, and I guess I was even interested in, you know, when I was learning mathematics, you know, I mean, why are things the way they are? And it seemed to me that the best explanation was to kind of go to history and see how things kind of developed and evolved and then, you know, got crystallized into mathematics and some of the other academic disciplines. So so that kind of idea here that if you really want to keep information and, and in some ways allow you to learn something that can add to what you currently know, You really do need that meaningful approach, because if you're memorizing, then basically you're going to use the same methods to memorize new information. So it's almost like you have this blackboard where you're writing a lot of stuff on. And then with a new test, you're basically just erasing what you had and putting in some new stuff. And that just seemed to me to be at least a waste of time and also didn't really give me that confidence that I understood you know, so I could have conversations with people about things, and and I think that test of that you really, you know, understood or 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 reflected on what it is that you're trying out to, you know, uh, index in your memory so you can retrieve it if it ever becomes relevant. You know, that I guess was something that was really important to me. Mm mm-hmm
0: what's happening neurologically in the brain uh when this process is occurring when you d- take this approach to learning as opposed to memorizing
1: well i i think if you're just memorizing so you're just kind of rehearsing in the most rote manner you know that basically will activate very different parts of your brain system than if you're in some ways encoding the information semantically so you're actually looking for what is it they already know that's going to be relevant to this new piece of information and and I think in particular, you know, comparing that new information with the information that you used to have that you had already stored and then reconciling that in a way that allows you now to kind of add new information without, you know, basically ruining any sort of Previously uh, correctly encoded information. Mm-hmm. So
0: let's say we took something like reading a book, for example, or even listening to this podcast. How would you take that same approach that you've just described and apply it to something like reading a book?
1: Well, I personally think that you have to have a goal with reading a book. Uh, or maybe sometimes you can read a book several times with different goals. Uh, but I think you know, if you're reading like most of my reading, it's relevant to my research. So I typically have a reason why I would read an article. Uh, So I basically then read it and in particular looking for things that might potentially be inconsistent with what I believe or what I know. uh, Because that, I guess, is, is what I, you know, as I'm now accumulated a lot of knowledge, you know, that's probably more interesting than the information that is already consistent with uh, what I know. Mm -hmm. But basically trying to understand that at the level where I can now, you know, ask questions about it, you know, to what extent is this really inconsistent or is it the author's opinion that it is inconsistent? But once you start looking more carefully at what it is that the researchers did, you find that it really isn't inconsistent. Uh, There is uh, an alternative explanation here for why they got results that they thought were different when in fact they were actually doing a different study than uh, the one that I guess I would have done under this similar circumstances. Mm -hmm.
0: So you're a college professor and Um, I'm wondering one, knowing everything that you do about expertise and human performance, how would you update the current education system to account for the knowledge that you possess? And what impact has it had on the way that you teach uh, your own students at, at the university you're at?
1: I think that's a, a great question that I, I would say that I'm currently thinking about and struggling a little bit with. and And I think our school system you know, is more generated in terms of giving students a certain type of experience and knowledge and not really asking the question, I mean, what are the information and and the skills that somebody who is graduating now from our educational systems should have? And I think that's where I see that kind of interesting tension between our work on expert performance, because many of those domains that we've studied, like music, sports, chess, You know, they are having a developmental progression in a career building that is virtually independent of the school system. So the question is, if you wanted to develop, you know, abilities to be a medical doctor or whatever, you know, would there be skills that you could actually acquire during your high school or middle school career that in some sense would, you know, make it easier for you to you know, become a very successful surgeon. And, and, and I believe that just understanding the methods by which you become really good at something may actually have a real value for individuals once they now encounter a different domain, that they have an understanding here what are the necessary activities that are required to really become successful and keep improving your performance across your career. Mm-hmm. Do, you,
0: do you have children by any chance? Uh, two. Okay, so I asked Dan Coyle this question. Uh, a lot of parents are listening to this. You knowing what you do about uh, human performance and the ability for people to reach sort of peak potential, what impact has that had on the way that you've raised your children? And what advice would you give to parents that are listening?
1: So, uh, my wife and I divorced really, really early on. So she's really the one that had the primary responsibility for the day to day upbringing of my uh, children. But I think, you know, I spent summers with them and, and basically, uh, uh, during some periods, you know, once a week we were together. And I think what, struck me was looking at a lot of individuals who make an early commitment to a career that that's pretty dangerous. Uh, I saw a lot of people who had career-ending injuries and also the tremendous competition <clears throat> in many domains. So to me it was more important you know to communicate that kind of setting some goals in some activity and then try to improve. And, and learn how you could actually change by working with the teacher, or in some cases, I would even be able to help them. So that more general preparation, and, and I guess with our current school system, you know, you're going to make decisions that are mostly important here for your career after you maybe even in college, So basically that idea that you're actually preparing somebody for the opportunities of developing skills, but leaving it open as to what particular professional direction that you would go in uh, for as long as basically the, uh, you know, is required for you to basically get started on your career. Mm -hmm. What, uh, what role does age play in our ability
0: to acquire a skill or develop skill at this level of proficiency uh, in terms of getting to like expert level performance?
1: I, I think that's a really interesting question. And, and I think I would want to start out saying that as we're learning more and more here about how various types of training can really improve and change people, I think age doesn't seem to be a very important constraint on how you can change. Now, in a field where you're competitive with other individuals, it's clear that somebody who starts preparing, working with teachers at age five, are basically gonna be much more likely to be successful as musicians when they compete for opportunities to be in the best music academies, maybe when they're in their early 20s. So basically, if you start when you're 15, it's going to be awfully hard for you to kind of catch up with those individuals who had an earlier start. But if you basically are now looking at a domain where people are starting at much older ages, then I think, you know, I see less problems. It may be that in many domains, there's a fair amount of knowledge and skills that is going to benefit somebody to being successful in that domain that they have acquired earlier on. And I think I mentioned earlier, that idea of being successful in some other activity is actually gonna give you some really good insights into the type of training and the type of organizing of your day that is going to allow you to be most effective here in your development of skill in this new domain.
0: It's interesting you say that because uh, one of the things I talked about in this new book was the fact that my ninth grade band director gets far less credit than he deserves for the habits that I've developed as a writer, because almost everything I learned about practice and habit and how it could improve performance was learned in ninth grade almost 30 years ago.
1: And and I think that's a really important point. And I, I, I find it kind of intriguing that It doesn't seem that basically I've been working with some people in medicine. So when they're accepting, say, surgeons to a a competitive program, they're really not looking back to see what that individual, their experience here of, you know, developing excellence in other areas and their insights into what it should take them in order to really, you know, be successful in this new domain. And I think that, you know, might actually be something that, that some of the organizations that I've been meeting with uh, are, are starting now to incorporate as part of what they put emphasis on when they accept individuals, you know, in, in job positions or in training positions.
0: You know, it, it's interesting because I think about sort of my early life uh, career wise, and it was characterized by nothing but failure. Uh, you know, getting fired from jobs, being really average at jobs. And I'm wondering if you see patterns like this in people who become expert performers. Uh, Are there places, you know, earlier in their life where they're really bad at something? Is that common? What leads to the drive and motivation for somebody to say, okay, you know what, I'm committed to becoming an expert at this
1: thing? I I think that is a really interesting question. And And I personally believe that that I would focus more on that kind of satisfaction and drive and that sense of control that individuals get when they feel like they're able to do what they really wanted to do. So just going back to myself, you know, basically being interested here and how I could improve my own thinking and basically figuring out ways here that I would be able to do research that would convince me that I actually learned something that I didn't know before. So so I think that personal quest that drives you, and basically there was many times that we did all sorts of explorations that never amounted to anything, but I didn't view those as failures. I viewed them more as, you know, you're eliminating kind of alternatives Which makes it maybe more likely here that you eventually will find, you know, the more uh, productive and fruitful direction to go.
3: Mm -hmm.
0: So what role does grit play in becoming an expert performer? And you said that you didn't view those as failures. And so often when we fail in some way or another, the sting of it feels incredibly permanent. And we tend to get our identity sort of intertwined with the failure uh, and get emotionally derailed. How do you prevent that from happening?
1: Well, I personally think that once you know maybe what you would like to become and then be able to identify, I remember when I was in high school, I, I was reading biographies of people that I really admired. And I thought it was really interesting <clears throat> to observe you know, the much more complicated process that allowed them to develop and eventually find something that ended up becoming very, very important that somehow established them as a sort of, you know, famous contributing scientists. But basically that long process that they went through and, and basically how they more or less were thinking and kind of learning from their experience as opposed to taking the evidence here that they couldn't do certain things uh, as, as some kind of evidence that they failed or lacked the abilities, uh, I think that was really influential to me. And and I think that idea that failure, if you basically look back on it, now obviously, if you could find a teacher, I think that teacher would be able to give you a much better sense here, what path and what are the necessary changes that you need to go through in order to really be able to do the things that you want to do. Mm-hmm. And and once you look at that discrepancy between what you can currently do and what you would like to do, and then being able to see a path, which may be much longer and maybe more frustrating than you expected, but it is a path that other people have taken and having a teacher being able to point to those individuals and what it is and how long it took for them to get to the point which you're aspiring to get to. What do you think it is that causes people to give up? You know, I don't know that I've talked to that many people giving up. I was struck by when I was talking to some uh, downhill skiers, and I was kind of interested in this question, you know, whether a very successful athlete gets to a plateau where they're convinced that they can't get any better. And when I was talking to these downhill skiers, I realized that they kind of ended their active kind of competitive careers, not because they didn't think they could get better. It was more that they their belief was that there were people that were sufficiently much better than they were, that they didn't really see a chance for them to basically be able to catch up with those individuals and basically now uh, become successful. Uh, And I think that's kind of an interesting problem because if you're looking at what you can change, which is something that you actually have more control over, then if you're going to basically be able to, you know, uh, reach a performance that's better than other people who are also, you know, engaged in training and may... Sometimes have better circumstances, better financial resources, and, you know, whatever other things that may actually be a disadvantage for you. So I think figuring out, you know, what is a domain where you actually have some reasonable chances here of doing what you want to do that isn't so competitive that you're always going to have to worry about that there's some people who may be even better than you are. And there's no way for you to now find a slightly different path that would allow you to succeed uh, in spite of or independent of their success.
3: For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at Burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at Burrow.com slash ACAST. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film,
2: If Only in Theaters, May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news?
0: It's interesting because earlier we were talking about constraints that I, I couldn't think, help but think about athletics of all places. You know, I played basketball in my seventh grade basketball team and I kind of knew I was like, I'm never going to be a professional basketball player. I'm constrained by the design of my physical body to never reach NBA level performance. But I also wonder if I could have gotten really good as a high school basketball player by understanding what I do about performance now.
1: Well, you know, and, and I think figuring out that basically ability, especially when you're in adolescence, you know how you could get better. I think that and getting that pleasure of getting the sense here that you can actually change your ability here to achieve on the court by basically engaging now uh, in the right kind of training. And, and I guess in our book, we put a lot of emphasis here on finding that mentor or coach who in some ways would be able to kind of help you identify now what are the next steps that would be allow you to get the most benefit here for your training. Because I think one of the things that I see people do is going on it alone and having not really capitalizing on the knowledge that some individuals have already accumulated here about for example, I've been talking to NBA shooting coaches, and it turns out that it's relatively rare for basketball players to really work with a shooting coach to kind of establish that fundamental skill. I think it's more recognized that if you wanna be a musician, it's really key that you acquire the right fundamentals, or if you're a ballet dancer. If you acquire ballet a skill, and still have some imperfections in what you're doing, that may actually be disastrous to you when you get to a higher competitive level, where you actually have to relearn a lot of the fundamentals to be able now to be on the right track that would allow you to kind of keep reaching the highest levels. Mm -hmm. One of the
0: things I'm wondering about is, what role does the Pygmalion effect play uh, in the performance that somebody gets when they're working with a coach, so to give you an example, let's say the coach has a strong belief in your capability to do something. I had a seventh grade band director who, for some reason, decided to tell me that I would make all state band someday. The day I picked up the instrument, I had shown like not an ounce of potential for that. I was the goof off kid in sixth grade band who, when they asked me about you know what the flags on the the notes were, I said they were for decorations, not exactly all state band material in the making. So I wonder what is the role of the belief that the teacher has in the student uh, when it comes to achievement?
1: Well, you know, I think that is really important. And especially the younger, the student, you know, it's almost like the student has a very difficult time assessing here what they can and can't do. But I also think that that interaction that you have with a coach or somebody who believes in you is very motivating, not just for the student, but also for the teacher. So basically finding opportunities like that, and that's one reason why I think I would recommend to parents to find something that they are interested in investing time in and actually making now that as a possible activity where they would be spending time with one or several of their children, engaging in that activity and and, and basically often improve together uh, to kind of give that sense here that, you know, you're actually designing a social activity where the challenge is, is sort of allowing you now to, you know, give your praise and, and 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 sort of good feedback to the student when they're actually doing improving. And that sets now the stage here, giving them a sense here what they need to do in order to improve. And if you believe that a lot of individuals, if they have the right kind of motivation and are not willing to do what it takes, then I think it's an interesting question. You know, I think many, many students would be able to achieve at a very, very high level if they had that kind of motivational and instructional support that I think you had. Mm -hmm.
0: So let's do this. Let's shift gears a little bit. And let's actually get into the how to of deliberate practice. And part of the reason I wanted to bring you back for a second interview is I wanted to make a case for deliberate practice, even when it comes to our creative work, even if that creative work is not necessarily intended to, to, intended to reach an audience of millions of people. What is the value of getting good at something uh, just for the sake of getting good at it? And then let's talk about specifically the how to.
1: Well, I, I think, you know, with most skills, uh, there's a starting point where you actually start out where you're very limited. But I think, and I think that if you look at music uh, and the Suzuki method where, you know, you're actually having the parent and the child interacting and producing kind of musical experiences. But when you get to a point now where the child or adolescent is now able to kind of think about what they're trying to achieve. So you have a child maybe who can be humming a melody or, you know, basically having a sense here of a musical experience that they can generate in their head. And now, basically, that is going to allow them then to be able to work with practice so they can actually externally generate what's in their head. And I think that. It's sort of a general finding that I see across all the different domains. When you get to that point where you have an idea and then you actually are using the skills that you have to make that external. So if it's an image, if you are a visual artist, or if it's a story for a writer, that you basically have something that you want to communicate. And now in order to successfully do that, Skills are going to be critical. You can also evaluate now yourself by rereading your story to see, you know, to what extent could this be improved? And and to what extent would it actually get closer to that experience that you really wanted to give the people who may or may not be reading your story? Mm -hmm. So
0: let's talk about This idea of the ten thousand hour rule, because I think the the thing that I really got from your book and your work was that mindless repetition does not constitute deliberate practice, and. I think one of the things that got, you know, uh, in people's head from the 10,000 hour rule rules oh, if I just do this thing for 10,000 hours, I'll get great at it. And I remember Jeff Colvin, who had written the book Talent is Overrated, said, you know, what I do at the uh, driving range every day is a pathetic example of deliberate practice. And that if he did that every day, there's no way he would have a chance against Tiger Woods on a golf course.
1: Right. and And I think that the essence here, that once you have something that you can measure your performance against, then it becomes clear that if you want to change your performance, something has to happen. And I think that's where purposeful practice or if you actually are in a domain here where we would argue that there is a teacher who actually has validated techniques for helping you bridge that gap or bridge part of the gap uh, with basically known training methods. But it is sort of, I think, you know, the really magic here of learning, you know, how you try to do your best, and then basically, how do you actually get further than your very best? And I think that's where you need to basically have that background in terms of teachers, because if you're already doing what you think is the best, how would you basically then figure out how to improve that further? And I think that's where a teacher would be able to see and compare you against other individuals, and now see what is it that you need to be changing in order to actually increase your accuracy or the speed or power or the quality of the ideas that you're generating. And I think that's really the heart of deliberate practice where you're not really just trying to do exactly the same thing, you're actually trying to do it slightly differently in a way that would allow you, you know, to basically uh, be on the path here of reaching a higher level of performance.
0: You know, it's interesting because we've been talking about this in the context, I think, of technical proficiency around particular skills, whether those be athletic or artistic skills. How does this get applied in the context of a working environment where an employee is working for a manager? Because... In my experience, just because somebody is a manager, it doesn't make them an adequate coach.
1: No, and and I think that's why we have suggested that, that ideally you should actually have learning environments where you have basically individuals who are performing according to everyone's standard at a higher level. And then basically you would try to basically see what is it that they are doing as a means now to help other individuals find a path towards basically reaching at least a higher level of performance. And there are sort of interesting ways. The, the one that we talk about a lot because it's been so researched is in chess, where, you know, if you're playing a chess game, you're obviously each time trying to do your best move. So how would you basically be able to know how you could have done a better chess game? Well, what people have done in the past is actually record chess games between world champions and other really good chess players. And then once you have the sequence of moves that they took, you can actually now simulate playing against these world champions. But now you're actually trying to figure out what you would do if you were the opponent. And then once you figure out what you would do, you can now compare that against what the world champion did for that exact same position. And if there's a mismatch, that's an opportunity now for you to actually think through and try to figure out why did the world champion do it this way, whereas you were trying to do it this other way, and thereby having that chance to kind of improve. So one of the things that Really struck me,
0: particularly in Jeff Colvin's book, uh, was the story that he opened the book with, which is about two guys sitting around at Procter and Gamble, fresh out of college—one out of Harvard, at the other out of Dartmouth—basically not appearing to have any long-term potential for success. Basically, you know, playing waste paper basketball. And those two guys turned out to be Steve Ballmer and Jeffrey Ilmelt. And I wonder what it is that is predictive of long-term success, and why we misjudge the act you know, we're not accurate when we judge the potential of it.
1: Well, you know, part of the problem, I guess, is that if you have this developmental process, and I think a lot of the research that's been trying to predict success are trying to find these basic abilities that, you know, they think will actually make a difference once you reach higher levels. And that is, I guess, one of the things that I wrote about recently, that once you start looking at chess, music, and all sorts of domains, what you find is that IQ and cognitive ability are quite predictive of how well you are doing as a beginner. So if you're actually evaluating the quality of chess moves or your ability to play music or do music tasks, IQ actually is predictive of that performance. But what's interesting is that when you acquire more skill, that those correlations disappear. So it is as if you're actually building something quite new that as you're building it will now start mediating your ability here to perform at a superior level. So that would sort of speak against the possibility here of actually predicting, you know, your future performance. If we exclude things like your Maybe your past history of becoming very good at other things uh, mm. that you know, might suggest here that you have a sense here of what is it that you need to do here in order to improve your performance in the domain that you have selected here for becoming successful at.
0: It's interesting. Part of what prompted this question is as I was writing a piece, uh, a new piece this morning about the the various lessons I'd learned from about a hundred people that I had interviewed, and one of them was from Todd Herman, who said, "You know, your performance is what's measured, not your potential." <laughs> On the field of play, people care about your performance, and it took me back to this documentary I watched called "The Year of the Quarterback," and it's about the year that Tom Brady got drafted, and There were five other quarterbacks that went before Tom Brady in the NFL draft. He was a sixth round draft pick. I think he was 199. And the quarterbacks who went before him, all of them had done extremely well in college, better than Brady. One of them had uh, won an NCAA championship. Another uh, was also wildly successful. One of them was a guy named Giovanni Carmazzi, got drafted by the San Francisco 49ers, played one game and couldn't hack it in the NFL. Another guy I think was named T. McGuire, didn't really last very long in the NFL. Tom Brady was a sixth round draft pick and he walked up to Bob Kraft on the first day of practice and he said, Mr. Kraft, my name is Tom Brady. And Bob Kraft, the owner of the New England Patriots said, I know who you are. And Tom Brady replied, I'm going to be the best decision you've ever made. So how is it that somebody's potential like these other two guys doesn't match up with their performance and then you get Tom Brady as a result?
1: Well, you know, I, I guess if I as a scientist had had the chance to, you know, study Tom Brady, especially at that beginning moment, I think that would be really interesting to, to see. Now, obviously, he had a lot of self-confidence, and the question, I guess, would be, what is it that, and, and I don't know enough about Tom Brady's early history, right. what, what kinds of experience that he had, but if you know all i know about tom brady is that he seems to be a person that at least is highly consistent with what we've learned here about you know purposeful and deliberate practice you know somebody who is really thinking through and analyzing videotapes and and in some ways engaged in this continuous process of of trying to improve one's ability here to make the right kind of decisions uh-huh. and and I, and I think that it's a kind of an interesting, you know, sort of related parallel. And when it comes to music prodigies, uh, they find that it's quite rare for children that were music prodigies to become very uh, sort of acclaimed music adult, uh, adults, uh, performers. And one reason is that the way that the prodigies often got their you know early performance was by being highly instructed by the parents and the parents did not seem to actually give these individuals that degree of freedom where they can actually develop now their ability of monitoring themselves and being able now once they reach adulthood to kind of keep improving and and i think that is sort of an interesting question that i guess if we could interview these other quarterbacks to get a better sense here of what is their background and to what extent were they actually had acquired the fundamentals so they would be able to, you know, uh, kind of perform. Mm-hmm. Now, sometimes it occurs if you're a high performer and then people expect you to keep performing immediately. I don't remember about Tom Tom Brady about, you know, what his initial experience was, but sometimes if you come in and the... Expectations are adjusted. You're going to have an easier time making that transitional period that allows you then to get to a point where you're performing sufficiently well, but you're still improving, uh, and, and thereby being able to establish your, you know, NFL career.
0: Yeah, that really I think raises a question for me about the role that self-worth and sort of the intangible things play in our ability to achieve expert performance because you know, I I think the skill development part is very obvious. You know, we have a list, we know how to do it. What role do do all these sort of intangible skills play in this?
1: Well, I, I think once we looked at the musicians, it seemed to me that once you looked at their daily lives, you know, there's a lot of very helpful decisions that they made. And I remember one thing that struck me was when I was talking to some of them, they claimed that they were not dating sort of, quote, normal people, people who hadn't the same kind of commitment to excellence as they did, because they found that it was very difficult to do that because they had different priorities. So instead, they found other individuals who were equally committed to other things that had that kind of respect for, you know, basically finding that time and, and, and being able to pace yourself in a way that really allowed you now you know, to get enough sleep so you would be able to engage in full concentration the following day when you're actually engaged in your practice. So I think you know, once you start looking at all these things, there's a lot. And having now kind of the emotional support and the kind of resources that would allow you now the freedom of actually focusing in on your own development i think is uh, very valuable and may have some really indirect effects here on your ability here to kind of you know uh start out and and and, and keep a career uh, developing uh
0: wow um One other question around this, given that we are in an incredibly distracted world and sort of the the deep dive that I've done into Stephen Kotler's work around flow and and focus and attention, what is the impact of our ability to manage our attention on our ability to cultivate deliberate practice? And since you and I last spoke, what have we seen in terms of human performance that has surprised you uh, and exceeded results that you saw back then?
1: Well, I personally think that that when you when you look at individuals, uh, even you know the most successful individuals, they try to find ways that simplify their lives and and basically protect them against uh, you know uh, intrusions. And and this was true even before we had all the iPhones and mm-hmm. of so telecommunication. I mean, they, for example, writers would tend to go off into places where they were basically isolated and could completely control now their working hours so they could kind of work in the morning and then maybe spend the afternoon taking uh, uh, walks and, and doing other kinds of relax relaxing things. And I think once you start recognizing that if you want to have that focus and be able to, be able to direct that to the kind of improvement or the product that you're generating if you're a writer or a painter or whatever. I, th- I think that's going to, uh, you know, people are going to start recognizing that and find ways uh, to basically protect themselves. And now, obviously, I can see a problem here that, that a lot of the things have to do with fame and, and basically, the way you manage your, uh, basically, your followers and, and, and engaging other people here being interested in what you're doing is kind of a problem that they didn't have. And, and maybe, you know, doing what I sort of found kind of interesting that some painters, they actually found a wife. That was sort of interested in the social part. <laughs> that basically work and the wife was doing kind of the, and obviously, uh, you know, today it could be a partner or it could be just a professional that you're working with. Uh-huh. Basically that idea that there may be ways here that you would be able to create sort of an organization where you maximize, you know, the opportunities for the person who is doing the product creation. As being sort of different from other people, uh, you know, being more involved here in the sales and, and PR uh, aspects.
3: Wow.
0: Um, well, this has been really, really fascinating and eye-opening and thought-provoking, as I kind of expected it would be. I I really have enjoyed our conversation. So I want to finish with my final question, which is how we close every interview at the unmistakable creative. What do you think it is that makes somebody or something unmistakable?
1: Well, I, I think you know that's up to the individual, and and I personally believe that. And I, I guess I remember my mother always was very insistent on the fact that you know being mediocre was the worst possible thing that, that could happen to you, and and it was sort of you know your opportunity and and your chance here to kind of seek out what could be your contribution here that you know could potentially make a a small impact for the better here and and i guess that kind of quest is something that i think i've been pursuing and 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 i do find that people that i meet that i find particularly interested interesting and, and successful they also seem to have that sense here of you know more or less the search for making a contribution that goes outside of your own needs and and that hopefully would you know allow other people to have lead more happy and and, and productive lives. Mm.
0: Well, I think that makes a really fitting and uh, beautiful end to our conversation. Where can people find out more about you and your work?
1: Well, basically, uh, I don't have a a website. Uh, I I guess I find that actually answering emails is keeping me very busy. So I have (laughs) been reluctant here to to try to expose myself to more. uh, And I don't have any social director here that can do the uh, uh, answering of emails and stuff like that. Uh, I don't know. I I think, you know, uh, I have my university uh, email address and, uh, and that's probably if people have some ideas. And I guess I'm particularly interested in helping people who are interested in doing some projects that, would incorporate and test some of these ideas that we've been exploring, you know, with the hope here that that may actually allow now to to kind of get the real value here of some of the uh, ideas that we've sort of extracted here by studying experts for these uh, three decades.
0: Awesome. And for everybody listening, we will wrap the show with that. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Unmistakable Creative Podcast. While you were listening, were there any moments you found fascinating, inspiring, instructive, maybe even heartwarming? Can you think of anyone, a friend or a family member who would appreciate this moment? If so, take a second and share today's episode with that one person, because good ideas and messages are meant to be shared.
2: Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quinn's.